Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hat. I can't believe I have to set me introduced today. Alex, who have we got on? We've got my very good chum, Josh Levine, who is sporting possibly the most fantastic uh, lockdown bid since we had Claude Birabi on. Yeah, I've had uh, two Fagans, one Moses and now two Jesuses, two Jesai. It looks wonderful. Josh is, of course, uh, a fantastic historian. He's published many, many fine books. He's currently working on North Africa in World War Two, but he has books on World War One. He's had a book on Dunkirk. He was the historical advisor on the Christopher Nolan film. Uh, but we're here today because Josh's favourite book that he's ever written just never got enough attention. It was called Beauty and Atrocity, and it was all about the troubles in Northern Ireland. Uh, and it was a real journey for you, wasn't it, Josh? It was. It was. I mean, I, I had uh, an extraordinary time writing this book because I was able to go out to Northern Ireland um, and spend almost a year meeting people uh, and just getting their stories and basically learning about it. I mean, I, it, it was. I think I was like a, a lot of people in that I, you know, grew up in Britain with the troubles in the newspapers every single day, you know, when I started becoming aware of things, which I suppose was the sort of end of the 70s, 80s, the, the troubles were in the newspapers, but there was never seemed to be, or if there was, I totally didn't see it, an explanation. You'd have every week, sometimes every single day, there'd be a killing, a shooting, a bombing, a, and then a tit-for-tat killing. Um, so one side, then the other, sometimes the police, sometimes the army, and just no explanations to, uh, as to why, what it was all about. Why were people dying um, and why were people killing? And also, I remember uh, I was very nearby uh, in 1982, summer of 82, the Regent's Park bombing, the bandstand when um, some members of the Royal Green Jackets were, were, were killed. And I remember hearing it. I was young at the time. Um, and I remember being completely amused by that. Um, it's a bandstand we used to go to a lot. Um, and I wanted, so I, I wanted to find out more. I wanted to go on a journey through, um, Northern Ireland, through, through the province to find out who these people were. Um, and I also wanted, because, you know, things that I had started to read, um, were so clearly written from one side or from the other side. Mm. So I wanted to come in, um, as a complete outsider, uh, and to try 
to write something objective um, or as objective as it could be to explain, you know, what's going on here. So that was that, you know, that was what got me interested. And then also I, uh, about that time, I remember reading about a, a study called the, the cost of the trouble study that talked about this university of Ulster, which talked about, um, you know, how people were affected. And the figures I read were just amazing. I mean, you know, they interviewed 3,000 people in Northern Ireland. Of them, a quarter of those people had seen people killed or injured. A fifth of them had experienced some sort of deterioration in their own health due to some troubles-related incident. And one in 20 of them had themselves been injured in an explosion or a, or a shooting. And people were talked about being scared to leave their own area, to have a fear of strangers. If you think about I mean, you know, it, it is a small place, Northern Ireland, but, you know, half the size of Wales. But um, the fact is that, that there, there you have this, this one place where all of these physical and mental effects, uh, consequences, were, 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 were still alive when I was writing this book, and now, today still. Um, and... Uh, can you imagine that in in Britain? You know, here we were so close, and yet with no idea really about it, why it was going on, and so it's all of this left me with so many questions. You know, what does it do to a national psyche, to people's attitudes, to to the way people live their lives? So that's really, in a nutshell, why I I, I wanted to go to Northern Ireland and and find out more. I think. You... I, sorry, I just quickly put in before you go on to number two. Um, yeah. Mine and my, I'm, I am younger than you. My, my vague, uh, recollections are of being sort of very early on in primary school, uh, but still being run down into the underpass under the Kensington Museums because there's something's been phoned in, yeah. uh, the taking away. There were no, never people, Americans still ask me why they can't find a trash can at, at Victoria or yes. And it's like, well, if you do, it'll be a, yeah. a carrier bag. Uh, dangling from a holder um, and it's because of this legacy um, of security. And then of course you know Americans you know felt in, in relatively recent years suddenly discovered terrorism terrorism started affecting America mm. and they the Americans kind of thought they'd invented it you know they, they didn't realize that actually we'd experienced all this for years and years beforehand. Um, <laughs> lived with in London when I was little um you may have to scarper pretty quickly but we're looking at very different kinds of bombs to what people would a very different kind of terrorist attack to and the idea of of phoning it in as well is sort of gone isn't it that this isn't it, yeah it is but it wasn't always phoned in I mean it was you know the, 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 there is this idea that there was always a code word and and you know and and usually that's true but there were bombs that were that, that weren't phoned in and also there were mistakes that were, you know, when, when warnings accidentally weren't given, like in, in, in Omar. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, there is a sense. I mean, you know, I talked about this tit for tat. Um, you know, that the, there was a sense that it became a game almost that, you know, one side, then the other side. Um, and, you know, the, the I talked to soldiers and, army officers who'd said that, that you know it, it became there was a predictability about it that made it for a while quite a good training ground um for for british soldiers you know the army did use it as a training ground but then there were events that sort of jerked it completely out of that predictability you know i'm going to talk 
you know, hopefully a, a bit about that, about, you know, the Brighton bomb. Cause I, um, it, well, we interviewed I, it, didn't you? We're going to get to this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, um, so yes, I mean, it was, it was a strange sort of, you know, at one level, there was a predictability to it. And you see that there's an amazing book called Lost Lives, which is, um, a compendium. It's like an encyclopedia of the troubles that goes into detail about every single death. And you can see there is, you know, for long periods of time, there's a pattern. Um, first this side, then that side, an army here, a, a, a police here. Um, and as I say, at, at, at intervals, you know, the whole, um, it, it would be sort of jerked out of that predictability and something would happen. It almost sounds sort of mafia-esque, doesn't it? You know, one gang eliminates one person, then you, you have the retaliation and, and so on. It's, yeah. it's a, a staggering mentality for somebody who didn't grow up kind of be, having been affected by the troubles. It's, it takes some getting your head around. It does. It really does. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's such an extraordinary period. And you spent what, almost a year meeting people on both sides of the divide, yeah. soldiers, policemen and politicians, as well as yeah. um, those in Ireland. People. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like being an outsider in Northern Ireland at the point that you were doing the research? Because it, it strikes me as being sort of quite a, um, kind of difficult position to put yourself in. It it was a ve- it was quite a, an interesting position to be in for a lot of reasons. I mean, I suppose my first my first it's important to have a first impression as I arrived for the first time. I thought, good, you know, have a first impression. It, my, the first impression was just delivered to me straight away. Coming from the airport in a taxi, taking me into Belfast, taxi driver said to me, "This carries on from what we were saying before." He said to me. He hadn't even got his meter running. And he said to me, are you a Jew? Um, and I was just sort of totally taken aback. I mean, I'd, I'd been in Northern Ireland for, for 10 minutes. He's the first person I'd spoken to. Um, and uh, I said, I said, yes. He said, my son's name is Reuben. He's more of a Jew than you. I didn't know what to say. Then he said, the Catholics are anti-Semitic. I'm a Presbyterian and we like you. So you've got nothing to worry about. Because <laughs> Jesus comes again. Don't worry, the Jews are going straight to heaven. So I, I was barely arrived, and already I was being um, categorized. Jews, absolutely, completely categorized. You know, uh, and and it was a lot to take in. Um, I went, I was staying after that on a place called Killy Lay on Strangford Loch, which was absolutely beautiful and had a legend around it. Um, I was made very welcome because people were so friendly. And another thing is, they wanted to talk. You know. The things they were talking about hadn't, they weren't really history yet. It was almost too recent. So people wanted to be the first to go on record to make their story into history. So a lot of people were quite keen to talk to me. Um, and then also I, I encountered a lot of certainty, if you know what I mean, freedom from doubt in the way people talk, talked about their lives, their experiences, this sort of intensity of belief. And it was, it was something that I wasn't really used to you know coming from a place in the background well i've been encouraged not to pass judgment on other people's beliefs here i was in a place where everyone at the drop of a hat pronounced judgment on everyone around them and everyone's attitudes and experiences so i for example i was talking to one man who was a lifelong republican from belfast and he said he'd moved to coventry for for a bit and he couldn't understand he moved back he couldn't understand coventry couldn't understand the politics he said it was a and called it a twilight city where nothing ever happened. And he started laughing about the fact that they thought a big political achievement in Coventry was to build a zebra crossing. 
I was sort of looking at him thinking, isn't that what it's supposed to be about? Yeah, this, this is winning. <laughs> yeah, this is, I mean, keeping children safe is quite important, isn't it? So they can cross a road. But no, to him, it was laughable. It was nothing. And so part of me was sort of amused. And part of me, it was, you know, there was, if I'm honest, sort of throwing myself into a place like this with this intense belief and certainty and lack of doubt. There's almost a, a sort of, you know, it came with a bit of jealousy. Um you know, that, that people could have this total belief that sort of dr- drives them on in life. Um, and I, I suppose jealousy is putting it strongly, but a sort of very mild, you know, a, a sense that wouldn't it be nice to wake up in the morning and know exactly who you were, what you were for and what you were against. It sort of takes the, it takes the, the, the confusion out of life. But having said that, the remedy for that kind of envy was absolutely everywhere. I mean, you, you remember the, You've seen the, the, the Belfast murals, you know, those fantastically large, gaudy sort of paramilitary paintings on the gable ends of terrace houses. And, and so you get them really close to each other in Belfast on the, the Falls Road, sort of the Falls, which is the Republican area, and then the Shankill Road, which is the, the Loyalist area. And they're almost next to each other. And there was one, this one was in the Loyalist area. It was a large picture uh, of a young man in um, a, a baseball cap around the wrong way, and he's wearing a thick gold chain, and he had his name, and then his nickname, which was Top Gun, and it said, Sleeping Where No Shadows Fall. And then when I looked up to see what he'd done, what he'd done was to go into a, a chemist shop and shoot the woman behind the counter dead and then carry on firing into her while she was lying on the ground. But now he's sleeping where no shadows fall. Um, so that, if, if that's the extent, if that's where your belief takes you, and that's quite a good remedy to the sort of vague feelings of yeah. <laughs> envy. Did um, you ever feel in personal danger? Oh, um, I've been to Northern Ireland, and it is a one. Their people are wonderfully warm and lovely. Um, but even in 2011, when I went and I was filming the uh, Titanic documentary, the the series we did on the hundred. 100- with Lane Goodman and um, the driver that took me to the airport she was lovely and she said and I was mentioning that I was really interested in the murals at the end of the streets you know where and there's a Titanic one which I was interested in and she said look I can drive you on the way to the airport we'll shoot past some of the really fantastic ones because there's one that's all uh, I think they're VC heroes from the First World War Mm. and she said I will drive you past a few of them she said but we can't stop and we can't get out of the car and I was like wow really in 2000 and when, when was this 2011. Isn't that interesting? I mean, yeah, so that's, that's about the time that I was, I mean, it's, it's one of these things. Uh, I mean, put it this way. I, I, I was there long enough that I sort of, any sort of sense of fear did sort of dissipate. Um, but I was certainly nervous. I mean, for one thing, I was in another world. And also, I was often very naive. So, for, you know, I was in Derry once. Um, Derry, London Derry, Stroke City, you know, you call it what, careful what you call it. And I was talking to a group of Republicans who I'd become friendly with. Um, and I, I suddenly thought, oh, I'll ask this. I asked them whether a particular Republican leader, Martin McGuinness, um, who was then very much alive, now dead, 
was under suspicion for being an informer, what they thought about this. And the mood, which had been totally friendly, my God, it just froze. Yeah, I think we should say as well that the people that you, you purposely went out there to speak to um, people that had been directly involved in terrorist well, I was I wanted to speak to, you know, people who had either carried it out, mm-hmm. victims of it, soldiers, policemen, uh, politicians. I wanted to speak to, but also... You know, ordinary. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to get, a, yes, the people who were at the sharp end, if you like, but also a, a cross section. I wanted to find out, you know, what Northern Ireland was. And when I, so here I was in this room of Republicans, um, and they just completely froze. And one of them just stared at me. Uh, you know, my knees sort of slightly gave way. That's my own stupidity. It was a ridiculous question to ask at that time and place. I just suddenly got emboldened. Someone else said to me once, well, no, someone else said, to someone that I'd been speaking to, he knows more than he's letting on. Which I, to this day, have no idea what that meant. Mm-hmm. And then someone else said, I can talk to you and I asked him for an interview. You've been vetted and you're not a spook. And again, who, who and how did they vet me? Was I definitely not a spook? I mean, no, I wasn't, but I, you know, I, it's just so fascinating to me how, how, how this worked. But you've got to remember, I was an outsider, a total outsider, at a time when informers were still reporting back to their handlers in, in Northern Ireland. And, you know, there's a Seamus, he- Seamus Heaney poem. Um, my, my book is Beauty and Atrocity, which is lying from a Seamus Heaney poem. There's another poem called Whatever You Say, Say Nothing, um, all about life in Northern Ireland. Saying the wrong thing to the wrong person could have terrible consequences. And I always think of, you know, you know a man called Robert Nyrak? You heard of Robert Nyrak? No. He was a, a Coldstream Guards officer who sort of slightly went went rogue, really. He you know, took it on himself. He thought he was, you know, the great secret agent. And he he posed as a Republican um, in a pub in South Armagh, which is, you know, bandit country. Um, and he was in this pub one night and he started singing a, a Republican song with the band. And anyway, he was taken out and over a period of hours tortured and and killed um and i'm certainly not comparing my own situation to to his but the fact is that an outsider uh, immediately attracts suspicion and there were times um when and you know there were also a lot of pubs that you know places like the Bogside in Derry, for example which is a very republican area where if i wouldn't have dared go into a pub on my own you know 10 years earlier i wouldn't even have gone into the bog side. Um, now, when I went, which was, what, 2010, 2011, I, I, I was all right to go in. Well, I felt safe enough going in, but I wouldn't have gone into a pub on my own unless invited by a local. So, you know, local people would take me to places and that would sort of be okay because I was, you know, I must be all right and with them. But there were a lot of places I absolutely wouldn't go to, you know, on my own. Um, so, yeah, there was a lot of... It was quite a lot of anxiety. Um, but was I ever really in danger? No, I don't. I, I wouldn't say so. When you were interviewing people, were they aware that you were talking to folks on the other side of the divide? Yes, yes. I was absolutely clear. I was never, oh, I, you know, I, I, the, the, there seemed to be absolutely no point in, in trying to use subject. Why attract more attention to myself by being caught out in any kind of a, a lie? I mean, I, I, that that probably is how I could have put myself in danger by by trying to be too clever. 
and trying to pretend I was, and there was no need. I mean, I was, I was at, you know, what I told you about my reasons for doing this book, what I was telling them. Yeah. You know, I want, I want to find out. I want your side of the story. Um, and people were, were, were in general, you know, pretty happy to, to, to give that to me. I think as well. So Zach and I are too young to remember a, a live running of what was behind this and mm. how it was structured and why the troubles existed. I think if you were to ask either of us, we would say the whole thing was Catholic versus Protestant. Mm. Is that what you discovered? Oh, again, so interesting because yes and no. I mean, sorry to, you know, no. point this answer, but yes and no. It wouldn't be a decent historian if you could give anyone a straight answer. It's our job not to. Well, I think a lot of people now want straight answers. They're quite annoyed if you bring nuance into anything. But anyway, our job is nuance. So um, no is the answer in that, I mean, if you, the, the, the people who are committing, uh, you're fighting the struggle, if you like, the IRA on one side, the UVF on the other side, they weren't religious. Um, they were not thinking of God when they were engaged in whatever it was they were doing. Having said that, without God, without Catholicism or Protestantism, there wouldn't have been a struggle in the first place. They wouldn't have been doing what they were doing. There'd have been no Protestants set to, sent to, to, to settle a Catholic country. There'd be no present day labels, I suppose, to, to, to decide who stands on, on which side of the divide. And so, you know, if it's not really about religion in that sense, a lot of people then say, well, it must be about culture. And what I discovered going on both sides of the divide, the, the you know, the euphemistically named peace walls that, you know, run down um, the centre of Belfast. And I could go from one to the other. Um, and I was telling people I was going from one to the other. And what I found was there's really nothing to tell one one bunch of people from another. There really is. I mean, there's a few, you know, people say that they in terms of pronunciation, the Catholics and the Protestants pronounce their H's differently. You know, it really comes down to things that small. I mean, the Shankill Butchers, who were a, um, a loyalist killing gang, you know, had to ask questions of their victims to ascertain whether they were Catholic or Protestant. And even then they made mistakes. So if they can't tell the difference, why could I? You know, how could I? And culturally, there wasn't any difference. And you, you know, I spoke to people who who said... You know, because only, I think only something like, even today, seven or eight percent of schools are integrated. The schools are Catholic or Protestant schools. And, um, and, you know, the people live still very much divided lives. Um, and I would ask people, you know, they say that they don't mix with people from the other side. They'd like to, but they don't. It's too complicated one way or the other. And more than one person said to me, the only time I've really mixed with them is when I go on holiday. You know, we go to Mallorca or somewhere, we meet people from the outside and we find out they're just like us. And I was able to see that going, you know, backwards and forwards. So it's not really religious. It's not really cultural. What it is, it's about identity. It's about identities that have been created by a perception of history. You know, this is how one side views themselves through their history this is how the other side does. It's them and us. It's whatever they are, we are not. It's kind of a negative more than more than a positive. And I, I always remember one British officer telling me that he'd, this is quite near the beginning of the Troubles in about 70, 71. Um, he'd been uh, walking past a statue of William III, um, William of Orange, and the reason why so many Protestants are named William or Billy. And... Uh, it said on the base of the of the statue, "This we will maintain." 
And I, a bit later, he, he asked someone, he said, what will you maintain? And the man said to him, I don't know, but we'll maintain it. And that is a kind of defining story, really. You know, whatever they are, we're not. Um, and I, I, I got a lot of that. Um, uh, and it was, yeah, it was, it was depressing, I suppose. But, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I personally just enjoyed spending time with these people so much. I mean, it was, it was, I, I, I found people friendly, um, and, and accommodating and generous. I was bought so many meals and bought so many drinks and, you know, it's, it's the last time I've been as frequently drunk. Um, people were just generous and, and, were there people who were stuck in the middle, though, where they didn't really want to get drawn into either camp? What was life like for them? Um, there were. Um, well, actually, I'll tell you quite a good example of that is is the Jewish community, because there is. I spent some time. There's a, there's a synagogue on Summerton Road in Belfast, um, and I spent quite a bit of time there. Seek out your own. It's a little safe haven in the middle, like you say. I I didn't um, look like Moses as I do now. Then, Um, and and that was really interesting because the Jews there was a you know it was small community now, but there had been once a really thriving um, Jewish community, and they'd always been very careful to tread a kind of a middle path. Um, You know, they 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 couldn't be seen to, to 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 be too much. Of one or too much of the other, clearly. I mean, you know, the, 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 um, uh, and so I remember, you know, walking down the, the, the they had a rabbi sent from London who was a, you know, proper sort of bearded and, and ringlet and he was very young and I spent time with him and he was, I, I remember walking down the street with him in the middle of Belfast and a, and a gang of people in a car just sort of slowed down to drive alongside us to, to stare at this rabbi because they had no idea what they were looking at. And there was no self-consciousness on their part. We did, they just basically curb-crawled us slowly, staring at this rabbi with his beard and his ringlets. And, and then they just made this loud noise, sort of, ah, and then drove off. They were in a safari park. You know, they were, they were looking at this strange, um, you know, this strange other. And I think that's because for so many years, you know, didn't come to Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland was a sort of, you know, in a way that so other parts of Britain had lots of immigration, Belfast had some, but not to nearly the same levels as other parts of Britain, because it was, in effect, a war zone. So I met one, I met a woman called Anna Lowe, who was Chinese. There was a Chinese community. She was actually a politician um, for the Alliance Party, which is the, the central, the middle party. Um, uh, so there were some people who came, um, but relatively few. Um, and they sort of you know stuck out as a result they were kind of oddities as a result because it was you know very tribal it was very you're one or or you're the other and that's one reason it was quite interesting being an outsider outsiders attract suspicion really so talking about the book um, yeah. how you structured it and how you went about it mm. basically tells a modern story but it goes right back to the anglo-normal invasion in the 12th mm. century in fact it goes beyond that to the Celtic. Mm things and a load of legends about giant babies and people cutting their own hands off why have you gone so far back apart from historian idle curiosity and rabbit holing 
Well, I mean, all those things, obviously. Yes. <laughs> um, but beyond that, um, I think to, to a greater degree than anywhere I've ever been, um, except maybe Israel, Palestine, uh, history is actually part of everyday life in Northern Ireland. It, I mean, it, it, you know, in one part of Belfast, for example, the, the Somme is being fought still. And, you, you know, uh, less than a mile away, the, the rebels of 1916 have just risen. It's all as real to people um, as what they had for breakfast. I mean, it really is. So, so uh, you know, so with your your First World War expertise, for example, the Rex Bar uh, in the Shankill, which I think is the oldest pub in the area, if you look it up on Google, you'll see, it's basically a shrine to the Somme. Um, huge shrine outside to the 36 Ulster Division. Um, you know, you, it, it, it is, it, it's extraordinary. You drive past and you, you, I mean, it's, it's everything is about the, the division, about the Somme. And, 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 and finally, if you look at it at the Somme, members of that division went over the top shouting no surrender, which itself is a reference back to the Siege of Derry of 1689. So during the Somme, they were referencing the past. You go in there to drink now, you're, referencing the Somme. As they went over the top of the Somme, they were referencing 1689. History is alive constantly. Harold Nicholson, who was, you know, writing 70 years ago, I've got the quote here somewhere. Um, he said, the Irish themselves had no sense of the past. For them, the present began on the 17th of October, 1171, when Henry II landed at Waterford. For them, history is always contemporaneous and current events are always history. And he, that, that he was writing that, what, 70 years ago. And it's still absolutely true. So to make sense of the last 50 years, you've got to go back a hell of a lot further. And even beyond, you know, um, uh, history into, into legend. So, the, you know, the red hand of Ulster, you must have seen that, that big red hand that you see on flags. Mainly unionist, but not just unionist, also nationalist. Um, uh, it, 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 it's, it's one of the symbols that's crossed the divide. Um, uh, it's actually the O'Neill crest and it's a story of a race across Strangford Loch where um, it, was, it was a race to become King of Ulster between two people in boats. One was this O'Neill and O'Neill was losing and he had to reach the other side first. So what he did was to cut off his own hand and with his other arm to hurl it onto shore. So his hand reached the shore first. So he won. So first of all, you know, that's a story about somebody from before the, the Protestant settlement. But secondly, it's so symbolic. It's a story about somebody who's basically crippling themselves in order to lay claim on Ulster. And my God, you've seen that. I mean, it just seems to me that is so symbolic of, you know, what's happened so often down the years. And if you, another thing, if you go into the, 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 the Tower Museum in Derry, London Derry, Stroke City, history, is told, the last 50 years is told, or at least it was when I was last in there, you have two parallel walls, walls on either side, and one side tells history from one perspective, the other side tells history from the other perspective. They can't even have a single story. You know, the, the museum has to give it from both sides. And one man, a university professor, he, he told me that everything anyone says to you here, no matter how much they say is foregrounded on fact, it's all subjective experience none of it's true he said there's no truth in this place anyone who gives you the true version you know not to trust them that's what he said to me um and that's pretty good advice and it's not because anyone's a liar 
it's because truth is so it's i mean everywhere of course we're historians we deal in subjective truth but my god it's unusual to find somewhere where it's so subjective and polarized um so anyway so yeah so so that's why i've had to go back to you know way way back because the present isn't just the you know the present began in um you know 2000 years ago yeah it's it's the 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 lead-in that forms the and and solidifies the the perceptions and the it does it does and and, you know it, it it I, you know, I, I go further and say that, you know, it, 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 it the, the past, it doesn't just inform, it doesn't just, I mean, it, it is present. I mean, it's there in everybody's, um, perceptions of what, anything anybody does seems to be so strongly informed by what they, who they are, which really means, you know, what, what the last thousand years have told them they are. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So when you were writing this book, you made the decision to tell the story through interviews. Mm. Was it hard to find people who were willing to come forward and share their experience? Were they kind of tripping over themselves to give mm. you their take on things? It was Getting started was a bit tricky. Um, you know, to sort of get the ball rolling. I went out to stay with um, a family who were very friendly. Through them, I met a man called Bobby Hanvey, incredible man, love him to bits. He was a sort of jack of all trades uh, and master of all trades. He was um, a photographer, a uh, radio interviewer, ex-psychiatric nurse, knew everybody, just knew everybody, and everybody liked him. So through him, I was able to get introductions. And once the dominoes started to topple, they really started to topple. And once people heard that I was okay, I could be trusted that, you know, then, then yes, I didn't, I didn't find it too difficult. And, and also bear in mind, I wasn't trying necessarily to get the top people because they were already talking. I was trying to get the more interesting people, um, you know, at, 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 at other levels, um, the people who wouldn't necessarily always be be, be, be expected to talk um, and then because of this obsession with history and the fact that everything is kind of present all at once um, then I realised that I could tell a lot of the past through talking to people you know who are around now um, so for example one man who was brilliant was a man called John Beresford Ash this 
incredibly old-fashioned, well-mannered, entertaining character, fabulously indiscreet. Um, he invited me to lunch, and I was meant to interview him after lunch. He got me so drunk that I just had to uh, get a cab home and come the next day to interview him. Um, and he had two very important ancestors. One, Tristram Beresford was the first. His name is Beresford Ash. Tristram Beresford was the first land agent for the City of London livery companies. And they were the people who funded the Protestant settlements in Derry, um, Catholic Derry, at the start of the 17th century. You know, so the settlers came from London, hence Londonderry. Um, you know, so he, he was, in effect, you know, his family and his documents were taking me back to the, the start of the Catholic-Protestant divide. And then his other ancestor, important ancestor, was a man called Thomas Ashe, who uh, kept a diary during the siege of Derry. So that, in 1685, um, King, uh, Catholic King James II came to the English throne, brought a lot of hope to the Irish Catholics. But then three years later, his Dutch Protestant son-in-law, William of Orange, landed in England with an army at the invitation of Protestant nobles um, to save England from Catholicism. So James fled to France. William became king. But then James gathered an army in France, came to Ireland, intending to use Ireland as a base to take back England. Um, and he marched to Dublin in triumph, no problem. Uh, then north, and the Protestants of Ulster flocked to Derry because it had these very strong defensive walls, which are still there. It's an amazing place to visit, though. Really. Um, and James's army besieged the city, and the city held out. This is what the 36th Ulster Division were shouting, no surrender at the Somme about. Um, Derry will not surrender. Um, and, and, and so I was able to tell that story, you know, through, so, so much of the history, I was able to sort of root in people who are around today. Another great person for that was a man called Dennis Rowan Hamilton, who owned this fairy tale castle in Killyday, Killyday Castle. Just look it up on the internet. It's like something out of Disney. Um, it's like Cinderella's Castle. And it, it was this, he was the direct descent of a man called um, Archibald Hamilton Rowan, who was a Protestant and a member of the Society of United Irishmen a bit later in the 18, late 18th century. And that was a secret society which was basically predicated on uniting uh, the Irish into a single Irish nation independent of Britain um, that would bring Catholics and Protestants together. That's how they were talking back in you know late late 18th century inspired by the American Civil War, by uh, the French Revolution, by the ideas of Tom Paine. Um, so, th so there you had a Protestant in favour of a united Ireland to show that things are never as tidy as you expect them to be. So I was able to tell all of these stories through my interactions with people who are there today. So the history, again, informing the present. Uh, and so that, I think, made a nice structure for you know, the parts of the book that, you know, the, the, the were further back. Well, let's stay with this because you interviewed so many people for yeah. this. Tell us about some of your more memorable interviews. I mean, there's so many. Well, I mean, oh, I just told you about John Beresford Ash. I mean, I'll just stay with him for a second because, you know, he was absolutely, you know, pucky. was I, Eton, Irish guards. Um, but there he was telling me about the inequalities in society you know, before um, the trouble started in the sort of 50s and 60s, the determination of political leaders in Northern Ireland to keep things that way. Um, and 
the lack of interest, complete lack of interest of the British government. You know, just wanted to palm the problem problem off. He, in 1970, told me how in 1971 he was bundled into a car in Belfast city centre, sorry, in Derry city centre, um, uh, by members of the IRA, um, the provisional IRA. Uh, he was taken to a house in the Cregan, up in Derry, where he was interrogated, and a young Martin McGuinness held a gun to his head. Uh, I was desperate to shoot, he told me. Um, and he was stopped, held back, basically, by by uh, others in the group. And then in the 80s, his house was twice firebombed by the IRA. He and his wife were very lucky to escape, particularly the second time. Um, and, you know, the, these extraordinary stories of what was happening so close, you know, to here, here, here we were living in, in, in Britain and, and this is part of the United Kingdom and it was, this is where it was, it was happening so close to us. And so I, you know, through him, as I said, I was able to tell the past story, but also, you know, bring it right up to date. I spoke, another person I spoke at length to was Patrick McGee, who was the Brighton bomber, the man who planted the, 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 the bomb in, in Brighton that almost, um, wiped out the, the British cabinet in 1984. Um, and I met him at the Europa Hotel in Belfast, which prided itself, you know, this was part, part, big part of its literature at this point, on being the most bombed hotel in Europe. Um, and I, I, I asked Patrick McGee, have you ever bombed this hotel? And he didn't want to answer. It's possibly told its own story. But anyway, the, the, um, it was a very interesting, I mean, it really was, it was a fascinating conversation. It was, I mean, he, he told me, he was very honest with me, really. And he, he told, he told me how he'd grown up in England, grown up in East Anglia until he was 19. Family left Belfast when he was four. Um, and so he had an English accent ready made, which, you know, obviously helped for him being one of their people on the mainland. Um, he told me all about his radicalization. That's what we call it now. I mean, even when I was writing the book, that wasn't a term. Um, when he came back to Belfast in 1971. Um, I mean, I, you know, there's no time to go into it all here, but it, we had a very interesting discussion about, you know, how he grew up, what he believed at the time. In the book, it provokes, a, you know, my my own discussion into whether the IRA was seeing itself as a, you know, a gen as genuinely defending Catholic communities, or whether it was provoking attacks, knowingly provoking attacks on Catholics by the security forces and by the loyalists to drum up support for its fight for a united Ireland, or whether it was doing both. Um, McGee talked about his time in the, in the IRA. He talked about, he talked, he was in the Mays prison, um, Mays, Longkesh, again, depending on which side you're on, what you call it. He talked about Jerry Adams' long war strategy of using smaller guerrilla units and then together with building up the political side of things, Sinn Féin, um, priests, you know, it was called, um, uh, at the time, in 1981, I think, uh, the ballot box in one hand, the armor light in the other, that sort of joint, um, uh, military and, 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 and political, uh, strategy. He talked about the fact that what he's known for, the Brighton bomb, the act that shattered the tit for tat nature of the troubles. This is what I was talking about before, that the, the, you know, you had this, one killing on one side, killing on the other side. It's almost, you know, almost a routine. And what this did 
the Brighton bomb was to jerk everything out of that routine to show that the IRA was capable of, you know, hitting well, not only the mainland, but, you know, the, the, the center of government. Um, they were capable of a lot more than, than localized killings. So, you know, in, in one way, you know, it really furthered the IRA's cause. In another, it could have completely set back this idea of, you know, violence and, and politics. Because if you think about it, if, um, how could the peace process ever have been successful, taken place, if the IRA had killed Margaret Thatcher and her, her government? Um, you know, no British government would ever, yeah. you know, ever would for decades have been able to negotiate with, with Sinn Fein. So, I mean, we talked, I remember one thing I remember that McGee said that was interesting. He talked about, um, British bru- army brutality and torture uh, of, um, IRA members and, and probably people who weren't IRA members. And I asked him what right the IRA had to complain when if a British soldier was captured, he was interrogated and shot. Um, and he said, he said the British had the sovereign power which they abused, he said they had options, we didn't. So we had, the, you know, it was quite an interesting, trying to get into the, you know, to, 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 to the thinking, his thinking at the time and how his thinking has now changed because, you know, there was a big change, for example, in republicanism because republicanism finally accepted that actually Britain may well have no strategic interest at all in Northern Ireland. Britain may well actually you know, want to get rid of Northern Ireland. See, there's a problem that it doesn't, really need but the the unionists who after all had been living there for 400 years had a very strong and sincere interest in remaining i mean you know at one point the republicans came up with this idea that they could be offered grants to return to britain which is totally ignoring the fact that this is where they live and you know it's it's not that simple um so until republicans engaged with the unionists the strategy of attacking the British and waiting for them to leave was arguably just pointless um, because the British weren't going to leave because of the Unionists. And, and um, so we talked a lot about that and he sort of you know, accepted it up to a point. Um, and he talked about the Good Friday Agreement as being a victory for Irish Republicans. And of course, not all Republicans agree with that. Because the Republican objective, when McGee was active, was to get the British out of Northern Ireland, or the six counties, as they, they called it. Um, and of course they haven't. Or at least they haven't, you know, there's no army on the street now. But, you know, the, 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 it, it, it's still part of the United Kingdom. Um, and besides all this, and maybe most interestingly, we talked about how he feels about killing people who had no discernible connection to Northern Ireland. I mean, the people that he killed in the Brighton bomb, um, you know, they weren't responsible for, for government policy. And, uh, you know, he killed the, the, um, a woman called Joe Berry, um, his daughter, Sir Anthony Berry. He, she and, and Patrick McGee now travel around together to, to war areas to, to, to talk about reconciliation. And he killed her father. And they, you know, they, they, they work together. And he talked about he regrets killing Sir Anthony Berry, Joe Berry's father. He regrets killing the others, but he doesn't regret the act that killed them. So he's got this sort of, you know, square to circle. Um, and 
I, I can't do it. And overall, he was a very interesting man. He was very clever. Kept saying he had no choice in what he did. Um, and it, it reminded me of, I, I, I once, I talk about going into pubs that I wouldn't have been allowed into otherwise or wouldn't have dared go into. I went into a pub in Bogside and was taken in by a local man, ex-IRA man. And we had a lot to drink and, and he ended up drunk, very drunk and very, very worried that he was going to, you know, when he died, he was going to face his reckoning. And he was genuinely, you know, you could see he was racked by, by fear about it. So, you know, I don't think McGee is, is religious in quite the same sense, but, um, you know, the, the, he was a very troubled man. But then you see, you listen to that. And then, you know, one of the first things I did after that was to talk to, to Bob Stewart, um, who then was a major commanding the 1st Battalion of the Cheshire Regiment, he'd been quickly on the scene when a bomb went off at a disco, which killed a lot of his men, drop-in well. Um, and he, he told me about talking to a local girl who died while he was holding her. She, she actually asked him if she was going to die. He said yes. And she asked him to hold her while, while she died. And one of his soldiers lost his legs. And there and then, at the time, was joking about it, saying this is a fuck of a way to get out of a cross-country run. He was telling me all this. So on the one hand, I hear Patrick McGee struggling with his, you know, what he'd done. And then I hear Bob Stewart telling me about the aftermath of that, you know, that, that form of act. So, you know, in th this book, I'm really trying to get at it. It's a kind of, there's, there's a lot of emotion in it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of head stuff. There's a lot of heart stuff. There's a lot of trying to make sense as an outsider of people's experiences as best I can and to try and tell it from as many sides as I can. Not, not that I'm absolving myself, you know, I'm, I'm in there. Sure. But at the same time, um, I, I am trying to let people explain themselves and if necessary, give them enough, enough rope. Tell us about interviewing Jerry Foster as well. He was, um, really interesting man, INLA man, um, who, he planted a bomb that was um, intended to wipe out basically the unionist uh, political leadership. And then did one of these people who did an about turn, became, became a peace campaigner. And again, you know, really interesting man. He told me a story as well about with his daughter, they were watching Schindler's List one night and he'd spent a lot of time in prison. And um, it is, Daughter, and he, he sort of drew a parallel between the fact that people in, you know, the, the prisoners, if you can call them the, the prisoners in Schindler's List, daughter said, but, you know, I thought prisoners were bad people. And he used his own experience to sort of say, well, look, I was in prison. I wasn't a bad person. Um, so again, you've got this, you've got a lot of these strange moral equivalences that are being drawn that to an outsider audience are almost obscene. Mm. Um, but if you sort of immerse yourself into the book, you start to see where these where these come from. I mean, I spoke to all sorts of people. I spoke to Andy Park, a Glaswegian, nothing to do with Northern Ireland, a Protestant from um, from Glasgow. But of course, there's an Orange Order in Glasgow, and you know we know from Rangers and Celtic this big sort of sectarian yeah. divide. And in the early seventies, no family in Northern Ireland, no connection, but decided that the British Army was not protecting. Um, the Protestants, the Unionists, the Loyalists, so went over to, as he said, fight the war. Um, and 
and stayed. I spoke to a man called uh, Brendan Duddy, who was the go-between between the IRA and the British government at a time when the government was claiming to have no connection at all with the IRA. Um, I sat with him in his house. He was a, a, a businessman from Northern Ireland. I sat on his sofa. He was telling me how it was on this sofa that, that Martin McGuinness had his about turn and sort of became reconciled to peace mm. before that he'd been. Um, and, and that was, that was interesting just to see, you know, the machinations, you know, and, and as I say, you know, these people were pretty honest about, about what had happened, what they did. They wanted to tell the story. They weren't particularly holding back. Um, odd little stories as well. One man, a prisoner, IRA man had been a prisoner for 20 years. Uh, uh, had been on the, um, not on the hunger strikes, but on the dirty protest. He was released after 20 years. Family came to pick him up from the maze, Longkesh, got in the car, drove back to his house, and he, uh, they dropped him at the bottom of the street and he walked to his house and he said he started to feel really dizzy walking, you know, 25 yards to his house. And he said he almost fell down and he realized he was walking on a slope for the first time in 20 years. Just little moments like that, human moments that sort of brought it home to you. My God, this is extraordinary. And then he, you know, he came out of prison age, I think 38. He'd never been on a date. So he was like, he said he was like a, a teenager. He was sort of going on dates with people as a middle-aged man, having completely missed that vibe of his life. So interesting as well to, you know, to to get that side of, of stories. Um, Is there anyone that you'd have liked to have got but didn't? Well, about, I'd say about 20,000 people, but... Um, Tell me your Ian Paisley story. I didn't get Ian Paisley. I, I, I kind of didn't go for Ian Paisley. Because I didn't, you know, he was talking enough already. My God, he was talking enough already. But, but I met him at a, um, at a St. Pat, of all things, a St. Patrick's Day breakfast, um, where he spoke and then a nun, Sister Breeze spoke. It was, you know, this is how much things had changed by the time. If you can imagine Ian Paisley and a nun together, I mean, my God, what the, what the small talk must have been like at the up their end of the table. But anyway, they, 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 there they were and, uh, he made a speech and then I went over and I, I had a chat with him. And what, you know, what do you say to Ian Paisley? I noticed he was, he wasn't having the same breakfast as anyone else. I said, you know, uh, how, how was your breakfast? And he, he, he lent into me. Bear in mind, he's about, he's about eight inches away. He lent in. And like I was a public meeting, he lent in and he said, they gave me the porridge, but they wouldn't give me any cream. And he basically yelled in my face. <laughs> and, you know, it was, it was the Alex Ferguson hairdryer. It was, I had the Ian Paisley hairdryer, but it was, it was just fabulous. To, you know, that, that's, that's how he does small talk. You know, he, he, he screams in, I'm sorry about the accent, but I hope I haven't offended anyone. Um, so he, you know, he, I, I, I mean, the other people that really made impressions on me, I went to a, a group of children, young people who'd been affected by the troubles in different ways. They'd lost family members. They'd been, you know, that was unbelievably moving to see how many years later people were still affected. And then I was introduced to two kids in Derry. We played pool together, two kids who were right on the edges of the real IRA. May have been in there. I don't know. But they were really interesting because they were furious about the fact that, you know, the, the, the Adams and the, and the um, uh, McGuinnesses, they'd had their time. And, and now they weren't, you know, they, as far as they were concerned, the fight was still on. The British were still in Ireland. 
and they were furious at the, at the previous generation who decided that you know it was all over now and but for them it wasn't and what one thing you did see was that you know during the travels these places these 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 areas of of of, of Belfast and Derry and other places you know had this sort of self-respect they were fighting back and take that away and what these places were well, run down the states and run down you know like anywhere else in in britain and you've got a sense that a lot of people felt oh, i you know you you've you martin mcginnis jerry Adams, you sentenced me to a life of nothing whereas you had the great struggle to fight and that was interesting to see from their perspective we played pool um them against me and you know one one frame each and and um and at the end they said um they they made a joke i was sort of driving away they made a joke saying why don't we phone the person who set this meeting up and why don't you phone and say that we've kidnapped you uh, and i sort of nervously laughed and then i thought no no why don't you phone him and i'll scream in the background uh, and then they really laughed and then i just drove really quickly away because i didn't want to tell us about um john kelly because that one really gets me oh gosh john kelly Okay, yeah, John Kelly was a very dignified, is very, very dignified man from Derry. He, he, he was able to tell me all about, um, growing up in Derry, London, Derry, um, in the sort of the slightly pre-Troubles times and the early period of the Troubles. At this time when Derry, um, uh, called itself Free Derry, basically, you know, cordoned itself off, certainly part of the Troubles and, and, you know, the police didn't go in, the army didn't go in, it sort of ran itself. Uh, it was a part of the United Kingdom where the Queen's writ didn't run, if you like. Um, uh, so he told me all about that. And then he, his young brother was killed on Bloody Sunday, um, shot by the Paras. You know, I'd already spoke to a member of the British Army who said that the, the Paras shouldn't have been sent in. It was a big mistake to send what he called the Rottweilers of the army in. Um, and this guy, John Kelly, you know, to, basically, you've got you've got a sense with quite a few people who had suffered this kind of bereavement on all sides that their lives kind of froze um, at, at the point where this happened. Um, and and I, I, I slightly got that sense here. And he he, he works. He's the kind of the education officer at the Derry at the, at the um, Free Derry Museum, which is kind of it was a, a museum devoted to Bloody Sunday. And so he sits there and we had very, very interesting chat. I liked him very much. Um, and in the background, you have a loop on playing on the speaker. I don't know if it's still there, but bloody Sunday playing all the time. So he sits there working in this atmosphere of the day being repeated, repeated, repeated on loop. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's, there's, there's kind of a, you know, I don't want to be too, come across as too judgmental, but there is a, you know, you, you, again, it ties into this idea of the past always being alive. The past is always with us. Um, and, and there it's particularly stark that, you know, it's, it's always there, which is not to say, you know, that, that, that you know, so it's, it's a, it's, it's a, mu a very, very worthwhile museum, but it's quite dark. Josh, this has been absolutely fascinating. I want to take it back to something that Alex said right at the start of this, which is that this is your favourite book to write. I think we've possibly got a sense of that from the passion that you conveyed to us, but just kind of explain to people why this particularly was your favourite. I think, well, there's so many reasons why I love this. Um, 
uh, you know, partly because it was a, it was a, a physical journey. I was, you know, I was, I was, um, uh, traveling around partly because I was meeting people and they were invariably interesting people, whether I liked them or not, they were fascinating. It had that slight element, I wouldn't say danger, but it had the, you know, that, that slight element of, of the unknown to it. If I didn't quite know what, well, I didn't know who I was going to meet next. I didn't know where the story was going to take me. Um, it became a real passion project. Um, and I suppose also because of, you know, I've written a, a few books now and some have done quite well and some have done less well. But of all of them, this is the one that's been forgotten. I mean, I, you know, people, if you look on Amazon, there's all reviews, good and bad for all of them. This one, I think, it's got four reviews. You know, it tells the same story. Um, and yet it's the one that kind of means most to me uh, in, in some ways. The most, it was personal because it was my journey. Uh, and I would love for more people to, to be aware of it um, and people to read it. And, and if this, listen, if Amazon gets gets one purchase as a result of this interview, then I'd be delighted. Um, actually, I've got to buy another one because I've only got one copy left. So, so we will get one purchase. Alex, is this going to be in our bookstore? Oh, hell yes. Beauty and Atrocity by Josh Levine will be in the History Hack bookshop at bookshop.org, which means not only do we take away business from the Leviathan that is Amazon uh, that doesn't treat authors very well, not only does Josh get paid, but History Hack gets paid as well. <laughs> Go to the History Hack bookstore, grab this book. I'm definitely going to do it because it sounds absolutely brilliant. It's not a period that I know much about, but this has been just an education. Thank you so much, Josh. It's been great having you on. Oh, absolute pleasure. Loved it. Thank you very much. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life is going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 